I encourage you to take out your Bible, turn over to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, as we continue through this sermon series called The Creeds of Christmas. How many people have their Christmas shopping done 21 days before? Oh, I see a few hands. How many people haven't started yet? Yeah, there's Mike. Okay, there's a few people. Okay, so you have, you have 21 days left coming up here. All right, as we... So last week we started out this series and we talked about how God is our promise keeper. We looked at the prophecies and how they were fulfilled. And Dennis, if you turn up some light, that'd be awesome. And so when we talked about those prophecies, it gives us proof and hope that God can be taken at his word. We talked about how he's a miracle-working God. And he didn't just perform miracles at Christmas, but he performs miracles even today. And many of you in this room could testify to that as well. And we also finished up last week with talking about he's the revealer of truth. He's the revealer of God himself coming down. We're going to expand upon that as we talk about Christ's presence, his presence. God desires to be with his people. You know, as I teach world religions, as I study those things, you realize how unique Christianity is when it comes to the fact that we have a God who wants to walk among his people and to be with us. Many of these other religions, they try every way they can to connect and get something from their God, but we have a God who desires to be with his people. Our scripture reading is in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, very familiar passage from the Christmas story. We'll be reading excerpts of the Christmas story through this series. In verse 8, it says that in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord." And this will be a sign for you, and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow for prayer. Father, I want to be with the psalmist to search our hearts, to open our hearts, to be attentive and that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight as we share these words. Lord, I pray that your spirit would flow through me, but also in this room, that you would open up hearts to what your word has to say. Each one of us come in here with needs, and you know what they are, and just thankful that the word goes out and does its work in each and every heart and life. And we praise you and thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, during the fall of 1775, there was an American person dressed like a farmer, and he went to one of the most lavish hotels in Baltimore, and he wanted to rent a room for the night. Well, the manager came and looked at this, you know, typical-looking American farmer, and he denied him the room because he was worried about the reputation of his hotel. Well, then, that was the person who was there was Thomas Jefferson, the then vice president of the United States, and he went on to go to another hotel that night and to get a room. And when that manager of that first hotel realized what he had done, he sent a message to Thomas Jefferson apologizing and inviting him to come back. And Jefferson's response was simple and to the point, I value your good intentions highly, 
But if you have no place for an American farmer, you have no right giving hospitality to the vice president of the United States. When Jesus came to live among men over 1,900 years ago, there was no room in the inn. People did not recognize the one that they met walking in that culture in that time. Jesus is God, always was, always will be. Yet it was God in the form of man that was symbolically rejected by the innkeeper and was later to be rejected, hated, and even crucified by his fellow man. As we look at the Christmas story, we see God desired to have a presence with his people by sending his one and only son to reveal who God is to accomplish his redemptive and kingdom work. Jesus has many, many titles you see throughout scripture, but we're going to look at three of those today as they pertain to the importance of his birth in Bethlehem. First of all, in your outline, he was born as the son of man, the son of man. Jesus is 100% human and why that is important. That's what I want to talk about. In the Heidelberg Catechism, question 16 comes up, why must Jesus be a true and righteous man? Now we're used to doing responsive reading, so let's, re let's say the answer together. He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner, he cannot pay for others. The answer here is focusing on the need for a real human nature. Why? Because the penalty of sin requires suffering in body and soul, and only a human could do this. Jesus' birth from a virgin is important. If he had been born of a human father, if Joseph had been his father, then that sinful nature passed down through Adam would have been a part of him. He would have had the sinful nature. But he could not have been the sacrifice for our sin because the Bible teaches in Exodus 12:5 that the sacrifice has to be without blemish. So Jesus had to be without the blemish of sin to be the sacrifice to pay for the penalty of the world's sins. Jesus had to identify with mankind. That's why he wrapped himself up in human flesh and walked among us. Jesus had all the characteristics of a human being. As Twyla pointed out in the Advent reading, and she wrote, and as Mason and Slayer read it, it talked about how Jesus needed his diaper changed. Jesus needed his mom to breastfeed him for nourishment. I'm sure Jesus, as a young boy, was running and playing in the dirt, and he skinned his knee. He went through all the things that a normal Hebrew boy in that time and in that culture would have gone through. It tells us in Luke 2.52, we don't have a whole lot of information about Jesus when he was a young man, but it says in Luke 2.52 that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He must most certainly learn skills from Joseph as a carpenter and a builder. We don't know much about Joseph. He's not mentioned beyond the Christmas story, and so we don't know how long he lived, but we believe that if he lived long enough that when he was a young man and a teenage boy, Jesus learned those skills from his father. In Philippians 2, verses 6 through 7, who, though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus developed 
and understanding compassion for man because of his human experience. Jesus loved human relationships. Listen to one description of him. In Matthew eleven nineteen. it says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they said, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. I could see Jesus laughing, enjoying parties, being with people, connecting in relationship with one another. And then he loved his fellow man, mankind. It says in Matthew 18, 11, in the New American Standard Bible, it says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Well, so also, Jesus had to face temptation, which was common to man, and yet be without sin. To me, this is one of the greatest things about knowing that Jesus came and walked among us and faced all the things we as human beings will face. Think about in John eleven thirty five at Lazarus' tomb. It says, Jesus wept. He was overcome with emotion. It tells us in, in Hebrews 5, 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. As a human being, he had to learn things. He had to grow, just like you and I. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it tells us why. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest, and Jesus is our high priest, chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. He limited himself. He set aside his godly attributes to walk among us, to identify with us, to know what it is to get tired, know what it is to get hungry, know what it is to deal with conflict in relationships. In John 1.29, his cousin John the Baptist said about Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then thirdly, Jesus had to be man to be the substitute on the cross to pay mankind's debt of sin. This is so important. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, do you realize as we think about Jesus' death on the cross, and we talked about it as we uh, celebrated communion together, that you and I, in a, phys- in a spiritual sense, we were at the cross. Our sins were being nailed to the cross. In 1 Peter 2, it says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 22, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Think about that. Jesus bore the sins of our body, bore the sins of mankind upon himself. And we'll talk more about that in just a few moments. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be like us 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What is propitiation there in verse uh, 16? Propitiation. It's averting the wrath of God by the offering of a gift. The averting of the wrath of God by offering a gift. God is just. God is holy. He cannot just turn his back on people's sins. And so he had to deal with it. And he did it by sending his son, Jesus, to be the payment, the substitute, the final sacrifice for sin. So here's our application. How comforting is it that we have a God who identified with mankind by living with him and experiencing all sin and temptation like man? He faced it and he turned away from it. And he was perfect without sin. So note, it should be obvious that if Jesus is God, then he's always been God. But there there was never a time when he became God because he's eternal. But Jesus has always, has not always been man. The fantastic miracle is that this eternal God became man through the incarnation about 2,000 years ago. And that's what the incarnation was. God, the Son, becoming man. And that's the great event we celebrate at Christmas. So let's look next at the fact that Jesus is 100% fully divine, the Son of God. The Son of God. Jesus is 100% God and why that is important. We'll go back to the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 17, why must he also be true God? And let's uh, respond together to this answer. So that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. He had to be God, the Son of God. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says there are two mysteries here for the price of one. The plurality of persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit within the unity of God And the union of Godhead and the second mystery is manhood and the person of Jesus. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. Think about that. There truly is no story more beautiful than the redemption story woven through the Bible, culminating at the coming of Christ at Christmas. This is a story that no one could possibly imagine or write about on their own, how a king left his throne humbled himself to be like his creation, then die an excruciating and horrible death to pay for the sins of those that he created. Think about the meaning and the power of that message. So we see under this point, to see Jesus is to see God. When you see Jesus, you see God, God in the flesh. Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. I hope you meditate on that thought, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And what a privilege it is that people in that time got to see him, and then we have the word to tell us about it thousands of years later. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says, Long ago, the writer said, At many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance 
of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Think about the depth of that message. He's the exact imprint of God. And then to satisfy God's wrath and bearing the weight of sin. That's why it was important also that he is the son of God. To satisfy God's wrath and bearing the weight of sin. In Exodus 34, 7, talking about some of the character qualities and the compassion that God has, he says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God is just, as I said a moment ago, and he's holy. And he doesn't know what sin is. He turns his back on it. So he's got a problem. How is he going to redeem these people? In Ezekiel 18.4, it says, The soul who sins shall die. The soul who sins shall die. And in Matthew 27.46, when Jesus is on the cross, he quotes from David's psalm, Psalm 22, and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God had to turn his back on his son as he poured out the sins of the world upon him as Jesus paid the wrath of God upon himself. And so the judgment was to have God the Father pour out his wrath, and instead of pouring it out on us, he pours it out on Jesus. That necessarily involves a kind of abandonment. That is what wrath means. He gave him up to suffer the weight of all the sins of all his people and the judgment for those sins. We cannot begin to fathom all this would mean between the Father and the Son. To be forsaken by God is the cry of the condemned, and Jesus was condemned for us. So he used these words because there was a real forsakenness in his spirit, that his Father turned his back on him. And then to be the Son of God, he had to be a sacrifice of infinite worth and value for mankind. Take your Bible, turn over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Paul lays this out in a few verses here. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Speaking of mankind, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for, and focus on that word for. We're going to talk about that word for in just a minute. For while we were still weak, Verse 6, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Back in verse 6 here in your Bible, it says the word for. It literally means in behalf of, for the sake of, for one's safety, for one's advantage, Strong's concordance, what it means in the Greek from Blue Letter Bible. Think about that. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, not for his advantage, but for our advantage because it was a gift 
given to each and every one of us. 1 John 2.2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus died for all mankind. And we know that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance in 2 Peter chapter 3. That's God's desire. So Jesus died that the whole world would have an opportunity to have a relationship with their creator, that they could be forgiven and rightly restored to fulfill the purpose for which God created them to be. I like uh, reading stories from Max Licato. Every Christmas, pretty much, I read from the glory of Christmas, a book by Max Licato, excerpts from his books, also Chuck Colson and Chuck Swindoll. And uh, this one is from Max Licato from The Grip of Grace. And it's talking about his childhood memories of playing football out on the street, playing street football. He says, youngsters, we neighborhood kids would play street football. And the minute we got home from school, we dropped the books and hit the pavement. The kid across the street, he had a dad with a great arm and a strong addiction to football. As soon as he'd pull in the driveway from work, he'd start, we'd start yelling for him to come and play ball. He couldn't resist. Out of fairness, he'd always ask, which team is losing? Then he would join that team, which Max Licato said was often his team. His appearance in the huddle changed the whole ball game. He was confident, strong, and most of all, he had a plan. We'd circle around him, and he'd look at us and say, okay, boys, here's what we're going to do. And the other side was groaning before we left the huddle. You see, we not only had a new plan, but we had a new leader. He brought new life to our team, and God does precisely the same thing. We didn't need a new play. We needed a new plan. We didn't need to trade positions. We needed a new player, and that player is Jesus Christ, God's son. We need a new plan, and that's what God did. He brought a plan to redeem us. Here's some applications. God has forgiven us 100%. Think about that. Not 99%, not 85%. If I were to give you a glass of water and say, hey, I'd like you to drink it, and then I put a drop of poison in it, how many of us would drink it? It wouldn't be pure water at that point. Why is it that we as believers, we struggle with believing that God can forgive us of all our sins? We battle with that. We have memories. That's one of the things. But God has said he is willing to forgive us of all our sin. And we can have the benefit of a clear conscience when we listen to what God says about us. We can pill our head at night knowing we are good with God and he is good with us. What a satisfying feeling. There may be some people who maybe won't reconcile with us or have issues with us, but we can know that we are right with our creator. If we confess our sins and we come before him and repent, he's willing to forgive us and we can have a clear conscience. We may have to endure the consequences of our actions, but we're free and justified in his sight. That gives us great perspective with our emotions and our mental health. We also, we feel loved by God. Do you ever get the sense sometimes that God works in the details of your life to make you feel that he loves you? I had this experience on Monday. I had a list of things, of errands to run, and I always make a list and plan out the order of where I'm going to go and to be as efficient as I can. And I was driving, turned onto Elmore by, uh, you know, Mill Chevrolet, headed past Walmart to another destination, and I remembered that there was something I needed at Walmart, but I could not remember what it was. 
So just as I was heading down there and I was coming to that light where you turn in, I said, Lord, what is it? What is it that I can't remember? I want to be efficient with my time. And all of a sudden, I'm not kidding, this commercial came on the radio about candles, candles. And I remembered that I needed two candles to finish decorating our mantle because they had broken. And sure enough, at that right moment, I turned in and I go into Walmart and you find the aisle and it's all the round candles, you know, in the jars. But there was one box with red candles, perfect for what I needed. Those are the ways we know that God loves us that he cares about the details of our life. And sometimes I think we take that for granted, that he wants to show us his love for us. So our application here is, are we more apt to follow and obey God out of motivation of love because of the love he had for us even before we came to Christ? First John says that he loved us even before we loved him. That should be our motivation to serve and to follow him. And when he gives us those little hugs, those little pictures in our life that he's caring about the details, remember his presence in your life. Our last descriptive name for Christ is this, son of David. Jesus is worthy of all praise as the coming king. We sang a song, he shall reign forevermore, right? Son of David, the proof from the genealogy of Joseph and Mary that Jesus is the son of David. Look at Matthew 1.1. Now, we know Joseph wasn't his human father, but if you follow his line of ancestry, we see in Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then you look at the other side, Mary's side, in Luke 3.31, Mary's lineage, her ancestors, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. As predicted, he would be the one who would carry on the rule and reign. Of course, when he comes back and after his millennial reign and sets up the new heavens and the new earth, he will reign forever. In Romans 1.3, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh. We see not only the proof, but the prediction that Jesus would be the son of David. In 2 Samuel 7.12-13, here's the promise. Here's the promise. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And that's the promise. And then we go to that passage that we always read at Christmas, Isaiah chapter 9. We see it there as well. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then he concludes this sentence by saying the zeal, or this section, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will do this. The zeal of the Lord assures us of God's intense love, his unstoppable devotion, his relentless commitment to accomplish his purpose in our lives. He's talking here about the unrivaled jealousy that God had for his people Israel, and I think that uh, comes to us in this current age as well, those who are believers in Christ. 
who are uh, jealous for God and he's jealous for us. The last point here is the power is in the title, Son of David. The power. There's power in Jesus' name. And of course, this is one of the titles given to him. And we see that reflected in the Gospels in Matthew 15, verse 22. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. She addresses him as Lord and son of David. In Matthew 20, 30, And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Lord, they were identifying him as deity, as God, son of David, the Messiah, the long-awaited deliverer, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. In Philippians 2, verse 7, it says, But Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen to that. And Jesus willingly limited himself of the powerful resources of his deity and walked among men as human beings experiencing everything human beings experience. He knew what it was to be lonely. He knew what it was to be hungry. He knew what it was to be fatigued. He knew what it was to be thirsty. But as these verses in Revelation say, the son of David is and will be exalted to everlasting praise and power on this earth in the future. In Revelation chapter 22, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So how does this apply to our life? Do we take focused time in our prayer life and our worship to carefully praise and honor Jesus as Lord and King? As Lord and King. As Lord and King of our lives. As the coming King in the future. And all that that means and all that that entails. Our summary of today's message is this. How hard is it to grasp that Jesus is 100% human and 100% God lived among mankind and will rule and reign someday as the son of David. Think about that awesome fact. It's hard to get our finite minds around that infinite truth. It's hard for us to picture that down the road in our minds. But we're grateful at this Christmas season that Jesus was willing to come into our world and reveal himself to us and reveal who God is. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, as we think about this indescribable gift of salvation, to kind of sum up this message, it says, for our sake, for our sake, who were sinners, Jesus, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange. He was willing to come and forgive us of our sin and then give us his righteousness in the form of the Holy Spirit living within us when we're born again and to give us that new nature to be able to walk and follow in his steps. One of my favorite uh, 
Christmas songs is Welcome to Our World by Chris Rice. In the last two sections of that song, he says, Fragile finger sent to heal us, tender brow prepared for thorn, tiny heart whose blood will save us, unto us is born. So wrap our injured flesh around you, breathe our air and walk our sod. And this is my favorite line, rob our sins and make us holy, perfect son of God. Welcome to our world. The gift of Jesus at Christmas keeps on giving more and more and more. And show that next slide as we think about gifts that are nestled in a box. And you open them up and more gifts come. As we open up this indescribable gift of Jesus at Christmas, he continues to give more and more and more to us. Don't miss out on the true meaning of Christmas spirit and all it means this year. So as we close today, think about these questions throughout this week. Are you grateful that Jesus lived among us and identifies us with us in love? He still does. He's still present with us. He's there when we need comfort after the loss of a loved one. There's many going through this Christmas season who've lost loved ones or are separated from uh, their family because they're prodigals or whatever reason. Are you grateful that Jesus lived among us and he comforts us and he could be our strength? Do you live and serve Christ out of a pure motivation of love? Do you serve him out of love or because you have to or because you feel guilty? It should be because you have that deep relationship with him and you want to serve him out of love. And lastly, do we honor and praise God by standing on God's word and behaving in a way that shows we reference him by how we live out our lives, that he is the son of God, the son of man, the Lord and king of our lives. Let's bow for prayer. As we pray today, I just encourage you to pause and just reflect. Think about all that Christ is and what he's done. Well, how he finished on the cross by saying those words, it is finished and paying the debt of sin, satisfying the wrath of God so that we could have eternal life and abundant life here on this earth. Take a moment and thank him for this indescribable gift at this Christmas season, and then we'll pray. Father, we're awed by the fact that you're in the very throne room of God. That you're willing to leave all that, the angels that were attending to you, the people who were praising you. And you're willing to come and wrap yourself up into human flesh and be born in a manger. Lord, we talk about it many times, but do we really sit and think about the depth of all the meaning that that is to us. We thank you for the love that's demonstrated to each individual in this room, that you care about the details of all of our lives, that you desire to show that you are present in our lives and the little things that we face throughout the week. Give us greater joy, greater, greater love, and greater surrender to you today, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.